Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in History. My name is Derek Litback, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Matthew Crow about his book, Thomas Jefferson, Legal History and the Art of Recollection, published by Cambridge University Press in 2017. Dr. Crow is Associate Professor of History at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. In Thomas Jefferson, Legal History and the Art of Recollection, Dr. Crow studies how Jefferson's association with legal history was born out of America's long history as part of an early modern empire and a political thought which preceded him. By examining how Jefferson's own development within this world, Dr. Crow finds that legal history was a mode of organizing and governing collective memory, which Jefferson deployed in his own constitutional, political, and racial thinking. Dr. Crow, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. So I guess to begin, can you tell our listeners how you became interested in this topic? Why study, you know, the enigma of Thomas Jefferson? Yeah, I, uh, I asked myself about what uh, I asked myself that a lot when I was uh, developing the project, both as an undergraduate uh, and a graduate student. You know, is there something new to say here? And if so, what is it? Um, <clears throat> and I think one of the things, one of the questions that's always interested me is the question about the use of history, right? Like, what is it for? Um, are we okay with having a usable attitude toward the past? Uh, and if so, what does good use look like and what does bad use look like? Um, it seems to me that a lot of professional historians, and understandably so, uh, are uncomfortable with the idea of a usable past, right? That's what politicians do. It's what lawyers do. It's what museums do, maybe. Um, it's what TV shows do. It's what musicals do. But that's not what historians do. Uh, and from the standpoint of the history of historical thought and the history of writing and thinking about history, that seems a little bit constricting to me. I, I want to think about, okay, well, do historians use the past too? And what for? What's the use of knowing something about the past or debating what we know about the past or who knows what, who gets the right to remember what, whose history gets acknowledged? What's the use of thinking about that stuff? Maybe it actually is very practical. Um, and what interested me about 
Jefferson's thought is it seemed to me that use, this question of using stuff, using knowledge, using books, using texts, using the land, using resources, use is at the center of his thinking. And he says very famously, of course, the earth belongs in usufra to the living. And that's usually taken to be a very kind of shallow thought, right? Well, the past doesn't matter. The past is dead. Let's look to the future. I don't think that that's what a guy that collected 6,000 books over the course of his life meant by that. There's something else going on there. And I'm interested in what that relationship is. How do you relate to the past after tradition, after you're uncertain about what its usefulness is or what its value is? At that moment, how do you read these texts that come come to us through tradition or through law or through politics, through literature, uh, through the archive? What does that stuff do in the present? And I think Jefferson thought a lot about that. And so that makes him valuable to me as a thinker. Hmm. I, I really like that. I mean, I think uh, for myself, when I was coming into history as an undergrad and everything like that, the thing that first got me interested in really, you know, like actually delving into history was mm-hmm the use of history. Right, yeah. And, yeah, and yeah. so, and it's definitely something I can totally agree that a lot of historians, even today, um, I think there's kind of, it's kind of shifting, but you know, even today there's still, it's like, Oh, history is important just for history's own sake. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And I, you know, and I understand why you want to defend why someone would want to defend doing something for its own sake. Right. I mean, you, I mean, utility shouldn't be the measure for all humanistic practice. On the other hand, I think people in the humanities more generally, not just historians, want to be able to say, no, this is useful. This this actually helps us or helps this group of people or helps this particular community or helps humanity. You know, it can, the scales can change. Uh, It helps us think about these things. It helps us address these things. These are political questions. Uh, These are legal questions. These are ethical questions. And history can speak to that. And so um, having this kind of playful almost attitude toward the past, and sometimes it has to be very serious, uh, and play itself can be very serious. But I think having, having historians be a little more comfortable with what it means to use the stuff they work on, uh, to me, is the, the kind of the big question that motivates the project. And so, you know, with Jefferson in mind and, you know, the use of, you know, this longer history and culture and everything like that, you you say that, you know, there's this larger intellectual culture that led to Jefferson's Mm -hmm. concerns for collecting and reading legal history, just the act of wanting to do that. Mm -hmm. And so how what is this culture and how does it, you know, influence Jefferson? Uh, Well, that's a very complex question. Um, I I think. it's uh, it's a very uh, English and it's a very British imperial uh, intellectual culture uh, at the same time. Um, on the one hand, it's deeply indebted to the 17th century common law thinking um, that Jefferson inherits um, as, as a young lawyer. Um, and Virginia and the American colonies more broadly uh, in this in the 18th century when Jefferson's you know coming up middle of the 18th century, um, you know, they're in kind of a weird place because the constitution of Britain has transformed dramatically over the course of the 18th century. Uh, but the colonists 
miss that transformation in a lot of ways. To them, the ascendancy of parliamentary power uh, just sort of doesn't make sense. They're still attached to the crown and they have their little parliaments and their assemblies. And so uh, partly for that reason and partly because they don't have access to the latest books and the latest legal theory, the latest law reports, except for the very, very wealthiest people, um, they're reading mostly old used books. They're reading 17th century law books. Uh, Jefferson cut his teeth on 17th century English legal theory in the mid to late 18th century. Uh, and he wasn't alone in that. Um, and what that means is there's a much more, not necessarily conservative politically, but conservative intellectually, a much more traditionalist approach to law anchored in this English myth of continuity and the ancient constitution, uh, and customary law, customary principles built up over time. And what you do when you study the law is you immerse yourself in this accumulation of um, principle and text and uh, intellectual development that is sort of archived in the very nature of the British Constitution. Um, I, I tell my students that uh, there's a there's a, a moment in the uh, in the Lord of the Rings movies where uh, Gandalf and the first one runs into the archive uh, in Minas Tirith and he starts digging through stuff. Um, and he's all these old pages. And you're like, what is he doing down here? That's sort of the way that this tradition thinks about law. Law is just old stuff. And it takes a very special kind of person, an elite cultivated person, to go down into there and sift through things and read the old words and know what they mean. And I think this the, the appeal of this way of thinking about law um, works on a collective scale for the Virginia elite because it allows them to think of themselves as connected to the British Empire, connected to English legal learning and intellectual culture, allows them to style themselves as elites, um, sort of projecting a vision of their own authority. Uh, at the same time, it also works for them individually, right? They're, they themselves are living on the periphery of an empire, right? They're not at the center of anything. The action in global politics for them and the imperial politics is happening in Westminster. Uh, the economic action in the colonies is moving to Philadelphia and New York, right? So, you know, they're, they're in this space where for them, how they think about themselves historically actually matters on a collective scale, on a constitutional scale, but it also matters to them individually. It really matters to someone like William Byrd of Westover or Thomas Jefferson to be able to connect themselves to elite legal learning, not just for the sake of their constitutional politics, but for their own understanding of themselves and who they are, their own security and their own cultural authority, and their ability to discuss and protect their property, their property and land, and of course, their property in human beings. Uh, and so for them, I think a lot of what they're doing is working on the past, using the material of law and political philosophy to make sense of the world that they live in. And so this use, uh, again, this dynamic of use, you know, it's, it's not always good. Right? It's, not, it's not always something that's just inherently emancipatory. It can be used for power. Uh, and the way that legal humanism and elite legal learning kind of shows up in Virginia is among the planter elite, thinking about how do they maintain power? How do they 
style themselves in such a way that they can defend their own local rights and prerogatives from metropolitan interference uh, at the same time that they project a level of kind of English colonial and imperial authority to the people that they're in charge of governing. And I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about it because, you know, I think when a lot of people who uh, think about, you know, like the revolutionary period when it comes around and everything like that and like the people like Thomas Jefferson, you know, if you ask them about like where they're getting these ideas, they're going to say like, okay, they're looking at these people, they're looking at these people, you know, they might be looking at the same sort of sources and, you know, backgrounds that you're looking at. But I feel like a lot of people think that these, you know, this larger legal culture, intellectual culture is something that people like Thomas Jefferson are using just to kind of produce intellectual texts, like, say, the Declaration of Independence. And what you're saying is that, you know, yeah, sure, they're doing that, but it's also, you know, an act of self-making for them in their own local worlds. And I find that very interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've wrestled with how to frame that and I, and I still do. I mean, I think it's a really complex question. And I think, you know, there's an argument that you can go too far down that road to where you're, you know, you're sort of paying attention to elite self-understanding to the point where it becomes almost reified or almost becomes an accepted version of reality. So it's important to be able to see, to step back and see someone like Jefferson um, projecting, right? (laughs) I mean, that's a big part of what he's doing. Um, And I think what makes him an interesting thinker, uh, well, one of the many things that makes him an interesting thinker is he does this at a moment where the kind of guarantors and the security of that intellectual tradition and of the politics that it enables are breaking down um, in the midst of the imperial crisis, uh, in the midst of changes to uh, political economy in Virginia and the wider uh, North American colonies, um, perceived threats to the slave system and the laws that underwrite it uh, throughout the empire. Uh, All of those things make the world that Jefferson lives in in the late 1760s and early 1770s a much more uncertain legal and intellectual world than the books he'd been reading a decade before would allow for. And so my argument about Jefferson is he becomes really sort of keenly attuned to the fact that the politics of history are changing uh, while uh, while the imperial crisis unfolds and on the brink of the American Revolution. And so I think, uh, you know, J.G. Pocock argues, the historian J.G. Pocock argues that the American Revolution comes out of a quarrel over history, a fight over history. And I think that's, that's really right. Uh, but it's true in ways that, um, you know, uh, not even Pocock, I think, fully, fully wrestled with in some cases. For Jefferson, it, the revolution is a, is a kind of crisis in how to think about yourself in time, how to think about yourself uh, in history, because the way that he'd been taught to do that starts to break down. And so he turns his attention very creatively to, okay, what kind of history, what kind of thinking about law and history, what kind of use of the past is uh, appropriate when you're building a new house, right? I mean, what do the bricks that are left over from the old house mean? What is their value? What can they hold? Or should we just toss them out? Uh, and that makes him a, a kind of a very interesting and a much more subtle, uh, if in some cases, maybe even kind of a dangerous thinker 
than our narratives in the history of political thought usually allow for. Yeah, and think in thinking about his, you know, development in constitutional thought and how he's deploying and using this, how does like all of this factor into the way that Jefferson thinks about, you know, constitutions and develop in laws and everything like that. And particularly, you know, to give an idea of, you know, where he stands, how does he relate, you know, not only to say the other Virginia elite, but maybe to other people in other colonies that are, you know, coming to prominence, such as say John Adams. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the, one of the things that really interested me about Jefferson is in terms of the history of legal thought and the history of jurisprudence, from the moment he starts really thinking on a public scale, he is not taken seriously <laughs> as, a, as an important legal thinker. Uh, he's in a very talented lawyer. I don't think anybody doubts that. He's a very keen legal and political mind. But as a scholar, very few people uh, give Jefferson a lot of credit. As a theorist, he's given even less credit. Uh, you know, and his letters with Madison about the Constitution are... Are, are tough to read. I mean, they're, they're amazing in some cases, but someone like Madison is sitting there going, TJ, buddy, we can't, you know, we can't have you uh, talking about revolutions every 20 years. That's not, <laughs> you miss, you're, you're, you're way off base here. And Adams has a similar reaction. Um, Hamilton, I mean, Hamilton think, thinks Jefferson's basically out to lunch. Um, so a lot of Jefferson's, and I think substantively, um, potentially at least revolutionary legal and constitutional thought um, is sort of either ahead of its time or behind its time. There's, it's untimely. It doesn't fit in to the idea of nation building and state formation very cleanly. Uh, it's romantic. It's borderline utopian. Um, and at least in some of its, in some of its iterations. And so the reaction he gets uh, and his fit into Virginia politics and national politics is very, um, it's, it's not a neat fit. Uh, and I think that's, it's useful for me to think about someone like Thomas Jefferson as a marginal figure because in the history of legal and constitutional thought he is, we don't, I mean, today, right, there's the monument, it's Thomas Jefferson, blah, 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 you know, Virginia, blah, 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 founders, blah, blah, blah. In the history of legal thought, Jefferson's a discarded figure. Uh, and I think that makes him uh, very interesting uh, and very useful in terms of thinking about law and politics uh, today. So what is that kind of constitutional vision? One of the experiences he has as a student of law is the, uh, the joy. Uh, Hannah Wright writes about this in On Revolution, the joy of coming to participate in politics, the, the thrill of being part of something new, of not being sure where you're all going, but being in the room where it happens, right? Being in the room with the people that are going to fight it out, that are going to have the argument, being having your voice heard in that argument, the thrill of open political action. And I think what Jefferson sees is that if you're going to have a republic uh, that was true in any legitimate sense to the fact that a revolution created it, it would have to have some way of maintaining its revolutionary character. It would have to be able to allow people to enjoy this experience. It would have to allow more and more people to get to do this, to get to have their voice heard, to get to be public figures, to get to argue in political space. 
and I think his vision for constitutionalism really does come out of an understanding of how do you equip citizenry to do that? That's the critical function of Jeffersonian constitutionalism. And it has two kind of really, really big and central components. One of them is you would need to be able to save something from that elite intellectual culture. You would need to be able to save something of the kind of pliability of manuscript and text, old books. You would need to have everyday people exposed to that a little bit and to learn to use it, not in the mode of authority or tradition, but in the sense of actually using it. His vision for how to amend the Virginia Constitution and his draft is to have people gathered into little assemblies around the state. And you would send out drafts, manuscript drafts of the amendments and have people comment on them like, like they were grading a paper or something and then send it back and they would incorporate revisions. So constitutional life in Jefferson's ideal visioning of it is, is a sort of an ongoing editing session. It's, it's we're working on ourselves. We're revising our text. We're rereading ourselves. We're rereading the texts that make up our polity. And I think for Jefferson, that's, that's really the ideal form of what, it, of what law and constitutionalism in a, in a revolutionary republic would have to look like. The big important thing for Jefferson, and I think at the center of his career, at the center of his thought, is if people's memories and people's histories are the stuff of what, of what makes up politics, whose memories count, whose memories are political, whose memories get to be acknowledged as civic, as public, as publicly acknowledged political material. And for him, the crucial, crucial thing is that the memory of slavery, the memory of empire, the memory of conquest has to be blighted out. It's not acknowledgeable as politics. Uh, and so his exclusionary vision, his vision for what, you know, what I think it has to be understood as ex very explicitly racist, very explicitly anchored in a vision of white supremacy, isn't just about skin color, uh, although that's a big part of it. It's not just about free and unfree, although that's a big part of it. It's about whose memories count as history, whose histories get to be remembered, and why. And he's scared, and to a certain extent, as a slave owner, as he should be, he's scared of other people's history. And I, I find, you know, that discussion, you know, it's 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 unfortunately so still kind of present in our society of thinking about, you know, whose memories are, you know, as you said, political, whose memories count and everything like that of what he's doing there. And, you know, kind of as you as you began saying, you know, the kind of how you know, history can be used is something that particularly historians have sometimes shied away from because, you know, as you're showing, Jefferson is doing this exact thing for mm -hmm. a certain purpose. And as mm -hmm. you said, it's rooted in this, you know, kind of white, you know, uh, kind of utopian version of society based in white supremacy of the right. eraser of all of these negative aspects of how you get there. Right. Right. Um, you know, and I think I mean, he says, I mean, one of the other things that makes Jefferson really useful is 
unlike in some cases Madison or Washington or even Adams or Hamilton and all these other guys, you know, Jefferson's very explicit about this. I mean, he he really sits down and thinks about it. The notes on the state of Virginia is, is, a, is a remarkable text for a lot of different reasons. But the explicitness with which, the directness with which he comes to the question of race is really kind of stark, right? I mean, he sits down and says, okay, well, uh, if, you know, if we're not willing to give up our property or to, you know, suffer a major loss of our investments in, you know, human capital, literally human capital, what are we doing? What is our, you know, what law, what understanding of politics is appropriate to that? What understanding of history is appropriate to that? And so you see him, <laughs> you know, starkly, openly thinking about, well, you know, you asked me why, uh, you know, black people can't be part of the Republic. Well, it's because they're going to remember being slaves and we can't have the memory of slavery be something that constitutes our politics. Uh, that will just be unpleasant and nasty. And so I think he's so useful to the present precisely because you see this issue resurfacing if it ever really went away. What do you do? with the memory of this event, this fact, this experience, this collective experience, what do you do with it? What politics is appropriate to addressing it? Or is politics dependent on, and I think some people really genuinely think this, making it go away, not thinking about it at all. Um, and so again, you know, I don't want to recommend or be too normative, too, you know, too instructive about how to think about history. What I, what I, my ambition, at least for the book, is to say historians can think a little bit more about the ways that history get used in politics and about the usable past. And I think a lot of historians, more and more historians are doing that today. That's an, a more open conversation, I think, than it used to be. Yeah, I would definitely say so. And, and thankfully so, because yeah, I, I think when you, you know, you study someone like Jefferson, you see what he's doing, you, you see how that kind of project has never gone away. And so I think the only way to really combat it is not by saying, hey, we should just study history for history's sake. You know, you you can try that. You know, I, I fully admit at one point in my life, I thought like that. But now yeah. it's just like, you know, once you actually start studying, it's like, OK, there has to be some right. value to this, at least in some situations. No, I think that's exactly right. And I, you know, um, I think that relationship between history and politics is, is a fraught one. It's, and it should be a little uncertain. It should be, it should be fraught. It should be something uh, that people question and question repeatedly. Um, but it's not something that has any real easy, you know, simple, oh, okay, well, history is either just a bunch of made up stuff that you use or no, 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 it's history for its own sake, you know, a kind of, uh, positivist or sort of antiquarian approach to the past where you just, you know, you catalog for the sake of cataloging and then let other people make what they will of it. History has this interpretive framework and it's deeply rooted in politics. Um, you know, one of the arguments that a historian like J.G.A. Pocock would make about the English context here is that, you know, the way we even think about history was created in law and politics, right? It comes out of a way of criticizing sources of reading texts uh, in the 17th century. And so even historical practice, even professional historical practice from its very foundation is political. It's related to 
and is part of how a society understands itself, how it shapes its own laws, how it rethinks its own ideas, how it incorporates new ideas or new memories or new experiences. Um, and so I, you know, I think a little bit more of almost kind of a historiographical sensibility uh, is the, what characterizes Jefferson's approach. And I think that's something that's instructive uh, to the present, this kind of, it's not so much a public history as it is a sort of public historiography. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, and I think your example of, you know, his notes on Virginia is really instructive on this. I was I was actually going to ask you about that, and you pretty much answered it perfectly in terms of, like, what the, what his notes are doing and what he's doing there. And, and thinking about you know, what he's doing with his, you know, ideas about how to use history and what those uses will kind of produce. You say that, you know, his kind of legal thinking is wrapped up in, to a large extent with equity. Mm-hmm. And so for our listeners who are maybe less law inclined, can you kind of explain what equity is and then why it's so important for Jefferson? Yeah. Um, so equity has really, in a, in a, intellectual legal history context. Well, I suppose equity has a very specifically legal context and a broader kind of philosophical context. Um, And the traditional story about that uh, would say that on the one hand, equity is uh, a very kind of specific tradition of thinking about law uh, and legal practice, specific jurisdiction uh, that happens before the Chancery Courts, or in Scotland before this, before the Court of Session uh, in the 18th century, um, and what characterizes um, Chancery practice or equity practice is a much more um, a, a much more open-ended approach to um, the interpretive framework uh, that the court will use, and specifically specifically that the judge will use. Uh, in any given case, it's usually uh, almost always questions of um, civil law and, you know, what you'll get. I mean, chancery cases uh, in the 18th century and the 19th century in the United States are, you know, <laughs> legal historians always remind me of this. You know, they're the most boring things you can work on. They're, they're, they're wills and testaments. They're, you know, they're contract renewals. They're, um, at what chancery courts do is they set aside a space where an equitable arrangement can be arrived at. Uh, in, in a given case, right? So if there's a dispute over a will, instead of adhering strictly speaking to the letter of the law, as you might in, in, under a you know, kind of common law, a jurisdictional framework, in a chancery court, the judge will say, okay, you two, you know, let, let's, let's make an arrangement here, right? The, you know, the illegitimate son should get something out of the will kind of thing. You know what I mean? And so it, what it allows for is the judge to be able to say, you know, we, we have some discretionary freedom here to think about what the outcome should be, right? And in some cases, the legal history of chancery courts is a very, 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 very kind of procedural 
banal history um, that uh, is very important, but isn't something that garners the attention of massive, you know, it isn't something that garners the attention of legal theory proper. But equity in this other sense, in this more philosophical sense, is the idea of natural justice. Um, and so part of what an equity court is supposed to do is promise justice, right? Uh, part of what equitable consideration is supposed to do is promise litigants justice. Part of what equity does, uh, and traditionally, equity, the court of equity is referred to in legal theory, in English legal theory in particular, is the conscience of the crown, the court of the conscience of the crown. It's the court where the royal prerogative has the most sway. In fact, its legitimacy is directly tied through the office of the Lord Chancellor to the royal prerogative. Uh, and so what you have is a form of discretionary authority that's meant to promise justice, right? And again, justice, like using the past, you know, is it justice in terms of severe punishment or is it justice in terms of forgiveness and mercy? Well, that's, you know, that's the thing, isn't it? Uh, and so uh, my argument about equity is that these two meanings the traditional legal history sense of an equity court and this broader philosophical sense of equity as the, the, the intervention of natural justice are actually more related uh, than we've traditionally thought of them uh, as being. And that's because the legal theorists who write about chancery courts are worried about them for precisely these philosophical reasons, right? Blackstone and the commentaries on the laws of England, um, Critics of uh, Justice Mansfield and the incredible amount of power that the Court of King's Bench accrues uh, under his uh, under his judgeship in the late 18th century, right? Critics of judicial discretionary power, strong judicial authority, all say this is what happens when you allow judges to decide what equity is. So equity is. On the one hand, a very kind of normal and basic procedure. On the other hand, everyone who thinks about law in the 18th century in the Anglophone world gets kind of nervous about it because even as chancery courts are, you know, uh, they have their own precedents, they have their own systems, they're mostly doing this very kind of important but regular stuff that law courts do, small law courts do. Um, the fact that judicial discretionary power is so present in the legal system long after that kind of discretionary power was supposed to be sort of dispensed with is a problem for legal theory. Um, and so equity emerges as this, this kind of dilemma uh, for legal theory. Uh, and especially in the early Republic, where in the American Revolution, after the American Revolution, you said, right, what's, what did it do? It got rid of the arbitrary rule of men and it replaced it with the rule of law. What does Thomas Paine say in America? The law is king. Right? Well, okay, well, who's reading the law? Who's using it? Who's deciding and why and how and what, well, what circumstances according to what criteria? Um, and I think that's the very beginning of a, a really quintessential problem uh, that still troubles uh, the left in particular in American and American politics, which is what do you do with judges, right? They're the most democratically unaccountable offices. And yet, um, you know, and several people have, have pointed this out, 
a lot of <laughs> a lot of what what passes for justice, uh, what we've achieved as a society uh, that might garner the word just, uh, is through courts. It's not through voting. It's through courts. It's through judges. Uh, and so, how do you think about judicial authority? And I think for Jefferson. What he was trying to do, and I think he had a perception of the of the way the British Constitution worked that's much more serious than a lot of people give him credit for. It wasn't so much the power of the king that was being redistributed or challenged. It was the judicial power of how the prerogative sort of trickled down into the court system. Uh, it's the judicial power of the crown the judicial power of the offices of the crown, the judicial authority rooted in parliamentary oversight of colonial affairs. It's the judicial wing of law and of constitutionalism that really bothers Jefferson. And so what is Jefferson's project? It's to make citizens capable of exercising political and even legal judgment on their own. And I think that's really what he's about. He's about enabling a citizen to practice the art of exercising legal authority. Yeah, it's it's so interesting to think of, you know, something like equity being, you know, as you, as you said, something that worries a lot of legal theorists during Jefferson's time. And with that in mind, it's no wonder that Jefferson is attracted to it because um, right. he always yeah. seems to be attracted to the things that scare everyone else. You know, <laughs> no, I think that's right. right. I think that's exactly right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. let's go to equity. You know, let's try and get a revolution every 20 years and rewrite our constitution all the time. You know, he's just always trying to make things hard on everyone else. Yeah, there's something. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And the notes on the state of Virginia is the same way. You know, I mean, I, you know, Madison is very you know, let's not talk about slavery unless we absolutely have to. You know, you know there's Jefferson. Oh, well, if we're going to have slaves, we better talk about it, right? And there's this kind of naive, let's think through this problem um, that makes him very useful to historians. I mean, it's one of the reasons, I, you know, in some ways he'll never go out of fashion. It's because his writings, the texts he leaves behind, just to address all of these things, uh, that are left to silence in some of the other uh, some of the other major figures uh, in the history of political thought, in the history of constitutionalism at the, at the founding. I think equity works the same way. You know, everyone's kind of like, okay, well, let's you know, equity should be something we constrain. Equity should be something we're very careful with. This, um, there's a great book by a legal historian named uh, Amalia Kessler about the politics of equity jurisprudence in the early republic, um, and. Uh, you know, Jefferson uh, plays a crucial role here in thinking about what the politics of that kind of judicial power, uh, those kinds of ideas uh, about judicial power and justice uh, should be. But he's, very, he's, you know, he's very direct uh, and almost that he approaches it with a kind of um, with sort of an innocence uh, that I, I think is uh, it's kind of funny almost, but it's refreshing and it's interesting. Uh, it's really, really interesting to look at uh, because as historians go back and say, oh, okay, well, this, you know, equity wasn't really that important or equity was important for these reasons, but not for those reasons. There's Jefferson connecting, right, these philosophical ideas to these seemingly very banal, very unphilosophical practices. Uh, and again, does that mean he's right? Not necessarily, but it makes him useful to thinking of the present. Yeah, I mean, I I know for myself, you know, thinking about, you know, what I do uh, with my own research, you know, I'm always kind of drawn to Jefferson, at least for some things. It's like, as you said, he's just like, oh, yeah, 
let's just like explicitly talk about these yeah. things. Yeah. And it's yeah. just like, for a historian, you're just like, yes, because yeah. all the other founders are just like, eh, we're going to kind of beat around a bush on this. And yeah. Jefferson's just like the Kool-Aid man busting right. through the wall. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And so, and speaking about, you know, his like views on, you know, like the revolution and its legacy and all of that stuff, you know, how does he, as, and you talk about this, how does he blend revolutionary politics with the legacy uh, and, and its legacy with like commercial expansion and empire? You know, we've, we touched on this before how, you know, he doesn't want empire, for example, to be at the forefront of, you know, historical memory and what it means to be American and everything mm-hmm. like that. Yet he is at the forefront of creating an American empire. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That's, um, that's a really good way of putting it. Um, I think, you know, there's no question that Jefferson is a theorist of what we've come to call settler colonialism uh, from a very early point in his career. If you look at a text like the Summary View of the Rights of British America, 1774, and he lays it out. Again, it's just him, you know, he lays it out very explicitly. Other people are kind of going, well, I wouldn't want to say, you know, that we do we really own the land. And Jefferson comes out and says it right there. He says, listen, if anyone owns North America, it's us. Because our ancestors, the original white settlers, showed up. They're the ones that cut down the trees. They're the ones that killed Native Americans. Through conquest and settlement, through violence, they made it theirs. Um, And so, in some sense, there's a unity over the course of Jefferson's thought, which is uh, built into his developing political theory, which is that if you're going to enable the citizen to exist this idealized vision of the citizen that he has, you're going to need to provide space for that citizen to exist. They're going to have to be economically independent, right? There's something deeply kind of um, socialistic uh, about Jefferson's thought, but it's inherently racially exclusionary. Uh, To enable that white, that idealized white male citizen to exist you need to provide him, and it's a him, with land so that he can be independent in this kind of very classically small R Republican sense. It goes all the way back to Rome. Um, this independent citizen rooted in their own economic independence that as a material ground for their political independence. Uh, if you're going to have that understanding, you've got to provide space. You've got to provide space. Well, there's a bunch of people standing in the way in Jefferson's understanding of how the American continent is supposed to look. Um, And so he becomes, uh, as he becomes more and more prominent, especially in the national political scene in the 1790s, uh, and then certainly as as president after 1800, um, he becomes a very explicit thinker on the question of what are the grounds for extending American territory, for having an American empire. Um, and I think my argument about Jefferson here is that this changes his thinking in some really kind of fundamental ways. I think the traditional story, uh, and it's a story that is, isn't wrong necessarily. I, I'm more sort of tweaking it than I am directly challenging it. But, uh, the traditional story on Jefferson is this just that kind of settler colonial mentality, you know, Western expansion, the empire of Liberty, that's sort of his bread and butter. And he's riding that train from very early on to the day that he dies. 
Um, for me, there's some subtle shifts in his thinking. Um, and the shift is really something you can see in his attitude toward text. His understanding of citizenship and constitutionalism in the revolutionary periods anchored in this idea of legal manuscripts, constitutional text as things that should be rewritten, rewritten on. Uh, he has this kind of palimpsest understanding of law. Law, has, law is something you write over, you scratch out. And then you kind of, you know, you might have some, some, some stuff on the margins, right? Or a, a note, a footnote on the bottom where you can say, well, we shouldn't think about it this way. We don't think about it this way anymore. Let's think about it that way. And his, his notes on law are full of that kind of stuff. He, he thinks about law in a very old kind of ancient sense. He thinks about constitutionalism in a very, a very intellectually conservative way, um, but in a way that to him fits radical political. Uh, as he thinks about continental empire um, and nation building, um, he begins to uh, shift his rhetorical stance and the way he thinks about text away from this kind of legal manuscript, um, kind of civic materialism uh, as a way of thinking about constitutionalism toward print culture. He starts to say, actually, you don't necessarily need to have this radical democratic idea. Um, that would be too local. That might be too, you know, I think a lot of it is him arguing with federalists, federalists saying you can't build a state, you can't build a nation with these guys, these Jeffersonians, you know, they're anti-federalists. They, 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 they can't think about what we're going to need to build uh, a, a global power. Jefferson's not ready to think on those levels. And I think what he does as uh, he joins Madison in kind of reframing the revolutionary potential of his thought to fit the ideological needs of saying, actually, territorial expansion will make us a stronger state. Right? And then as doing that, when they do that, they're leaving behind a series of ideas about politics that are very, very old. Uh, but Montesquieu is certainly the latest for them, the, the, the most recent voice to deal with there, he says, if you're going to have a democracy, even a republic, but especially if you're going to have a democracy, it has to be local because people have to be able to meet their representatives or show up in the assembly themselves. You can't have uh, a democratic, expansive territory. It just doesn't work. You just can't. And what Madison and Jefferson start to say, and again, this is eerily similar to some ideological projections of the present. Oh, no, 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 no. Yes, we can. Because communications technology has allowed us to solve the old problems of politics. These problems, they, they, they're, they're, they're bugaboos, they're, they're worries of the past. We don't need to worry about that anymore because newspapers, print, has changed the way people relate to each other. I mean, it's a very, it lends itself very nicely to something like Benedict Anderson's understanding of the nation, right? You're just going to spread out space and time over continents and people will relate, not necessarily through law and direct participation in politics, but through newspapers, through print. Um, and my argument is in doing that, Jefferson loses something uh, of the revolutionary nature of his own thought. He kind of abandons uh, what was interesting, uh, at least to me, uh, in his revolutionary thinking about law. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting to think about, you know, how different and kind of, you know, radical in in its own way of the the way that you know people like Jefferson and Madison are thinking about how you can expand 
you know, the geographic scope of a country and still hold it together. And then the way in which, you know, he tries to basically like say like, oh, yeah, no, we're not building an empire, but, you know, we are making a bigger country and this is still a democracy and all of these things. Right. But no, that's exactly right. And to say we're going to have a democracy, we're going to have a democratic republic extend over territory is to say most of the political theory we've absorbed from the Republican tradition is now essentially can, can be safely put to bed. It's defunct. Um, and, you know, I, I'm sort of this is sort of my, you know, uh, my own bias, perhaps. Uh, but I get very skeptical uh, when I see a thinker saying because of this shift, this problem has now gone away or we can afford to dispense with these series of questions. I, whenever I see somebody doing that either today or 200 years ago, I go, something's up. They're doing, they're, they're up to no good, or at least they're hiding something. Like what, what's about to happen? Um, uh, that stuff's about to come back in a really interesting way uh, and perhaps a surprising way. Uh, so I think what Jefferson's doing is saying, you know, we don't, we don't need to worry about Montesquieu and we don't need to worry about this Republican stuff anymore because we've changed the game. We've changed the rules. Empire will work in a new way because we've, we've enabled an exceptional new example, uh, in world history. We're going to, we're going to write our own rules. Um, and I think there's something, uh, very familiar in that. Um, and I think there's something very dangerous in that. And, you know, my argument about Jefferson is again, that, He's sort of reworking his own thinking. Um, and in retirement, he kind of goes back. He's sitting at Monticello and he's going, you know, I, you know, <laughs> I kind of lost that, that connection to this, uh, to this approach, right? And if you look at the way he relates to the Bible, he's sitting there, you know, cutting up Bibles and pasting them back together, and thinking about ways people should be reading texts in their new universities at the University of Virginia. Um, he goes back to that older humanist understanding of text. Um, but he does it in a way that's detached largely from its direct connection to politics, right? It, it takes for granted that it's really an old guy sitting in his house and thinking about this stuff almost for fun. Um, and it's still connected to politics and his thinking, but it's not a directly constitutional vision. Um, it's been, you know, it's been made safe. One could argue almost um, it's. And so, for Jefferson, you know, a lot of what the story of his career is, is a story of him actively working to forget his own revolutionary uh, insights. Um, and I think that's true on a number of fronts, but it's certainly true. And I think most perceptible in the subtlety with which he thinks about the way that texts become political or become legal, become constitutional, uh, and how that relates to his vision for how democratic politics is supposed to work. Yeah, I find that a really interesting way of of thinking about it. You know, I was going to ask you about his retirement, and you and you, you got beat me to the punch again in in terms of you know saying how you know he kind of gets to this old man. He says, "Okay, I'm you know, I'm going to rethink everything now," and it's like you know completely just you know to a certain extent detached, as you said, from the world that he helped create. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I really like the way you, you said it in terms of, you know, a lot of Jefferson's career is just trying to forget what Jefferson actually did. Right. And, <laughs> and, it's, and it really is, as we've said several times throughout uh, this interview, you know, it's very kind of eerily similar, you know, to our own contemporary time, you know, these 
this kind of never goes away in terms mm. of, you know, the Jeffersons of the world um, never go away. The ideas that he kind of subscribed to and it put out there, you know, it's it's very much still, you know, at least or particularly um, within politics, you know, there's plenty of Jeffersons out there forgetting what they've done. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. And, you know, and in some cases, um, you know, there's an argument in favor of, of, of uh, forgetfulness or of, of um, moving beyond something, certainly. Uh, but in terms of the politics of memory and the politics of history, a big part of what I want to say is you sort of, it's not that you can't let Jefferson get away with that. We can't let ourselves get away with that in, in a way. Um, the, the relationship between history and politics, especially today, especially today, is so direct uh, and so important politically. I mean, it, it kills people. People's understand other some people's understandings of history are killing other people. And literally, not just sort of oh, it kills me. Literally killing other people. Right? Violence is produced by this. Uh, in many cases, most often, unfortunately, very reactionary, hateful, horrible violence. So this is something that's very direct. It's not just academic. Part of the tragedy. With Jefferson, is it almost become something that to him is academic, but it's not at all. The relationship between history and politics is intimate, it's inseparable, um, and it's at the very nature of the political questions we're asking today. I mean, what is HB 140, the, the, um, the bill before the House, to think about? Um, uh, it's not technically a reparations bill, but it's, it's a bill about studying the economic loss, right? What the financial cost of white supremacy is, if that's even you know, cost is even the appropriate word to use there. What is that about? Why are people uncomfortable with it in some cases? Because it's it's the it's history becoming political. Um, and that's not, you know, that's certainly I wouldn't claim that that's just my insight at all. That's something a lot of historians and a lot of other writers and thinkers and people themselves are thinking about. Um, all I want is for historians to be a little more comfortable with the idea that what we're doing is facilitating the use of history for, for law and for, for law and politics for, for largely rhetorical purposes and to be okay with that too. You know, if, if we don't use the past or if we don't facilitate a healthy, um, democratic, just use of the past, someone else will use it differently. Right. And so what I'd like to see is, a way of thinking about history that's just a little more at home with the idea that history is, is largely about use. It's largely about how you use it. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree with everything you just said. I mean, it's, it's, it's really what, you know, the profession kind of needs to embrace. And like you said, you know, I think there is, you know, a shift happening and, you know, I really appreciate the way in which, you know, your book can highlight, you know, the kind of history of this happening in a different time period with, you know, a readily recognizable kind of founding father, you know, a founder out there who's doing this exact thing to, as you said, not in, you know, if we're not using it to create, you know, a more just kind of world in the opposite, arguably what Jefferson is doing. Right. No, I think that's exactly right. And so history is always about use, you know, and I think, for early Americanists in particular, the big, the big issue today is, um, you know, something like, uh, like Joe Lepore's recent argument in favor of the nation, right? I mean, if you, um, you know, I, and I think a lot of historians get uncomfortable 
with her argument that history has this kind of civic component. Um, uh, and uh, what I would want to say uh, is that, you know, the civic component of it doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> it makes total sense. I think she's completely right about this relationship between history and politics. The question is, it does, you know, a kind of traditionally liberal understanding of the bounded nation progressing through time, is that good politics anymore? And that's where, that's actually my question. I don't, I don't necessarily think that it is, uh, in my own political activism, my own political activity, that story seems to have kind of broken down. And this is again, what Jefferson, why Jefferson is so interesting. He thinks about the use of history in a moment when the categories we have to think about history are breaking down. I think we're in a similar moment. Uh, and that means we need to be really careful with how we use the past how we construct new visions of politics, but new visions of politics, I think is precisely what we need. Yeah. I mean, what you just said there reminded me of, you know, a recent article in the society for us intellectual history by uh, Wesley R. Bishop that talks about mm -hmm. kind of, you know, the, as you, as you said, the like liberal historical narrative mm -hmm. of like a bounded nation and what that does and kind of the political value of that and right. the changing times. Right. right. Um, no, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, um, I read that piece. And I thought it was, it was just brilliant um, in a lot of different ways, but I think, um, uh, you know, he said it too. It's, it's not that history isn't political. It's that, is this the way we want it to be political? And I think we, we have to have a confrontation with, um, with, with conquest, right. With, uh, with, uh, with settler colonialism, uh, with white supremacy. And I don't think, I don't, you know, I don't necessarily think that, um, you, you can't do that through Jill Lepore's framework. Uh, and I certainly don't think Jill Lepore would say, you know, you don't, don't do that. Don't do that. That's, that's bad. Um, but I do think that, the, I, I think the concept of the nation is going to be something that whose whose utility uh, for constructing emancipatory politics is is if it's not already gone, it's mostly it's on its way out. Um, um, I, I don't see how you combat nationalism with 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 nationalism. Uh, I think historians. My, my own particular understanding would be, uh, and I think that post, um, you know, there's a lot of great posts on that, on that site. That was one of them. Um, uh, what it, what it does, I think really well is, is suggest that, you know, it, yeah, it will be risky. It is dangerous, but we need to write the history of the United States as if it were the history of an empire. Um, it's a series of different political communities that overlap and intersect, but it, they're different political communities with different histories. How do you have a constitutionalism? How do you have a politics that, in, that can live with that plurality? Uh, the fact that we haven't been living in the same history, not all of us have been living in the same history, but we're in the same polity or our polities are inseparable from one another institutionally or even at least geographically. So what do we do? And I think that open question is a scary one, but it's something that we have, not necessarily, I wouldn't say models, but we have precedent for in the past. Jefferson fought in precisely such a moment, and that can go in some very nice and good ways, and that can go in some very, very ugly and bad ways. 
So again, when historians think about politics, I think we need to be attuned to the way that history constructs politics. And I think we should own that as a way of insisting on the fact that history really, really matters. Well, you know, I, I really appreciate the insight and everything. And before we let you go, you know, first, I want to make sure, you know, everyone goes out, you know, all our listeners go out and buy this book. It's amazing. <laughs> you know, Matthew Crow, Thomas Jefferson, Legal History and the Art of Recollection. I think you can see how important of a study it is. But after everyone has gone out and read your book and bought your book, what can we expect from you in the future? What might you be working on right now? Uh, so I'm working on um, two sort of uh, very interrelated, a couple, I guess, really different interrelated projects. The, the one that has most of my focus right now is actually a very similar book about the way that Herman Melville uh, thought about law and historiography and memory uh, and race and empire. Um, I think if Jefferson envisioned a nation of white settlers who could judge themselves and judge each other in a democratic and largely equitable context. Melville writes in the ruins of that idea. He sees a pathologically violent society grounded in um, institutionalized forms of racial supremacy and, uh, and violence, uh, and not just violence against other human beings, but violence against the world, violence against nature, violence against the most obvious example would be whales. Um, And Melville, in a sense, I think becomes another, uh, even more attuned, even even more playful uh, theorist of the ways the law and history and our concepts of justice both enable and constrict what we imagine to be politically possible. So I'm, it's, it's not really a sequel, but it's, it's kind of the next generation, I guess. Um, Melville is a theorist of law uh, and history uh, and justice. Well, I think uh, we'll probably want to have you right back on the program when you do that too. <laughs> I would look forward to it very much. <laughs> um, well, in any case, thank you very much for being on the program today. Thank you for having me. It was great.